Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to open to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. Today, uh, we begin our new series, our new book study in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and we'll be here for quite some time. We're not going to take one chapter per week like we did with Genesis, so we're going to probably divide it up a little bit differently, but we'll be in Exodus for the next few months, so I hope that you continue to join us uh, week after week as we work through this outstanding book, as, as you know. Well, the title of the message is Exodus and Its World, a story of redemption and revelation. A story of redemption and revelation. Well, the heart is a fist-sized organ that pumps blood throughout your body. That's what you came here to find out today. It's the primary organ of your circulatory system. And your heart contains four main sections or chambers made of muscle, and it is powered by electrical impulses. Your brain and nervous system direct your heart's function. Your heart is located in the front of your chest, and it sits slightly behind and to the left of your sternum. It sits between your right and left lungs, and actually your left lung is slightly smaller to make room for the heart on the left side of your chest. Generally, adult hearts are about the same size as two clenched fists. Of course, that depends on the size of your hands. And it weighs about 10 ounces on average. Your heart has walls. Your heart has chambers or rooms. Your heart has valves, doors, blood vessels, which would essentially be the plumbing in your body, and then an electrical conduction system, the electricity running through your body. All of which, by the way, keeps blood flowing throughout your entire body to keep you alive. Now, there's a reason why Leviticus 17:11 says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood." Well, it goes without saying that the heart is absolutely crucial to your existence. Your heart is critical for your existence. Put another way, and no pun intended with this, on a human level, the heart or centrality of your existence is your heart. It's foundational. It's essential. It's necessary. It is vital. Well, in biblical and theological terms, The heart of the Old Testament is the book of Exodus. It is central. It is foundational. It is fundamental. It is the center of of the Old Testament. Uh, Just as your heart is central to your being, so is the book of Exodus. It is central to the Old Testament scripture, and it ultimately points to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says, the exodus from Egypt, the foundational episode of redemption and formation of Israel into a people and nation becomes a prefigurement of Jesus's passion through which he redeems people from the power of sin and forms them into the church. For the nation of Israel, and if you look back in Jewish history, Exodus was and is the story of the Old Testament. It is viewed as a landmark event. 
It is the supreme, and don't miss this, it is the supreme example of redemption in the Old Testament. That's why over 100 times the prophets instruct the nation of Israel to retell the story of the Exodus. So for the Jew, for the Hebrew, for the Israelite, this story was part of their DNA. It was their heart and soul. One commentator says, virtually every kind of religious literature in the Hebrew Bible, prose narrative, liturgical poetry, didactic prose, and prophecy, celebrates the Exodus as a foundational event. Moreover, it is the story of Exodus that previews the greatest act of redemption, that the eternal Son of God took to himself human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead to redeem sinners. He gave his life a ransom for many. One author says, no book, therefore, will more repay careful study if we wish to understand the central message of the New Testament than this book, the center of the Old Testament. Well, in our time together this morning, we are going to consider the introductory matters as it relates to the book of Exodus. So we aren't beginning our verse-by-verse exposition of this book, but we're going to look at some introductory matters. So today we'll have more of a classroom-type feel uh, than anything sermonic or anything that you'll probably see as we continue to study this book. So in our time together, we're going to consider four categories of introductory material. We're going to do that to familiarize ourselves with Exodus and its world to compel us to know more and to love better our great God who redeems a people and reveals himself. So let's begin by looking at the first category of introductory material, and we'll just title this, The Background of Exodus. The Background of Exodus. Now, as we work through these introductory matters, I want us to steer away from thinking that we're just accruing sort of facts and statistics about Exodus. What I want us to do this morning is to try and immerse ourselves into the Exodus narrative, into the Exodus world, so we begin seeing the story as if we are really walking through the story as an eyewitness. So let's look at this background information. Let's first off look at the title. The title. The title Exodus, it comes from a series of translations. First off, if you look at the Hebrew Scripture, the Hebrew Scripture simply titles it, and these are the names of. Riveting title, huh? And these are the names of, which is, those are the opening two words of Exodus 1.1 in Hebrew. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was available to Jesus and the apostles, it was translated roughly 100 or 200 years before them, They titled this book in the Septuagint, Exodus. Exodus, it's the Greek word exodu, which means a way out or going out or to exit or the departure of. 
In fact, if you turn over to Exodus 19, let me show you where this comes from. Turn over to Exodus 19. If you go to Exodus 19 and you look at verse 1, this is as the nation of Israel is coming to the Mount Sinai. It says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. Right there, gone out. That's exodus. Exodus, the departure of. That's where the Septuagint is pulling in their title. So Exodus in your English Bible is based on the Septuagint. So we're looking at a 2,000-year-old tradition of calling it the book of Exodus. So we are not here to change the title of the book. We're going to keep going with Exodus based on Exodus 19.1. Exodus, the sons of Israel had gone out. Now that isn't controversial at all, but if you do a little research on the background to Exodus, you will know that the authorship is extremely controversial. However, it should not be, as one commentator says, that the book of Exodus is an example of literary and theological genius. Now, depending on where you land on the spectrum of liberal or conservative scholarship, this is where you land on authorship. And you can jot these down and research this a little more this week or as we continue our Exodus study, but there are two primary options that are presented for the authorship of Exodus. The first one, liberal scholarship, will, they will advocate for um, an editor or a compiler, someone that came along after the events, they found four hypothetical documents, and then they compiled from those documents the book of Exodus. If you research this, you'll come across what's called the JEPD sources. The JEPD sources. Now, I'm not kidding. These are four hypothetical documents that the supposed author of Exodus used to write the Exodus narrative. The JEPD theory. That's liberal scholarship. That's, that's where they land. Of course, we land on the conservative side of the debate and the issue. So we argue for mosaic authorship. And we argue that Moses actually wrote the content almost as he was going through the events described here. That's where we would land. Now let's talk about why real quick. First off, the internal evidence. Let's look at the internal evidence. Although Exodus does not explicitly say that Moses is the author, the internal evidence is profound. So this isn't a reach to say that Moses wrote Exodus. This is, in fact the view of the Old Testament. So Exodus presents, and you'll see this as we work through these 40 chapters, Exodus presents Moses, and listen to me here, Exodus presents Moses as one who speaks, writes, reads, and acts on behalf of God. That's how Moses is presented, one who speaks, writes, reads, and acts on behalf of God. So he's described as speaking on behalf of God. Exodus 7.2, God says, you shall speak all that I command you. Exodus portrays Moses as writing on behalf of God. And you can just jot these references down and again, research this this week. 
Moses writes on behalf of God. In Exodus 17, 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and then recite it to Joshua. So Moses speaks on behalf of God. He writes on behalf of God. Next, he reads on behalf of God. That's an interesting concept to think about. He reads on behalf of God. This is Exodus 24, verses 7 through 8. Moses took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And then all of the people responded, saying, we will obey it. So Moses is reading on behalf of God, and probably the one that we're most familiar with is that Moses acts on behalf of God. And what I mean by this is that Moses is around by either performing or as a bystander to God performing signs and wonders and miracles. We know this. Now, this is Exodus 4 and 5. I mean, God literally gives Moses the ability to perform specific miracles to tell the nation of Israel that God really did send him, and then to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. To let the people go. Now, the point of highlighting Moses' unique relationship and interaction with God in Exodus is because there is no other person that better fits authorship than Moses. Not only was he an eyewitness, but he was acting on behalf of God. Again, that's not new information for you, but just something to think about when considering authorship. If there's any one person in the Old Testament that would have had priority in writing and authoring this book, it would have been... It would have been Moses. Now let's look at the prophetic evidence. So that's the internal evidence. Let's look at the prophetic evidence. In other words, what does the rest of the Old Testament say? Well, I already made mention of the fact that over 100 times, Old Testament authors, prophets, over 100 times, they tell the people to revert back to the Exodus, to understand redemption. And they claim that Moses is the author. Again, there's so many examples of this, we can only look at a few. Joshua chapter 8, verse 31 is a prime example of this. It says, again, this is coming from God in Joshua, it refers to the book that was written in the law of Moses. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, David charged Solomon to keep, keep God's law as it is written in the law of Moses. Now, you see this over and over in 2 Kings. You see it seven times in Chronicles. The law of Moses or the law of the Lord. Now, one author says, virtually every kind of religious literature in the Hebrew Bible looks at Exodus as the foundational event and that Moses was the author of it. It's difficult to get away from that conclusion. Now, what does the New Testament say? Briefly, the New Testament also demonstrates that Moses is the author. You find this from Jesus specifically in Luke chapter 24, twice. We'll look at verse 44. 
Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus there was referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture. He says, that is the law of Moses. Not only do we find that from Jesus, we also find that from his apostles. Peter affirms it in Acts 3.22. Paul affirms it in Acts 26.22. Again, you can look at those references sometime this week. But Jesus and the apostles affirm Mosaic authorship. So that's the author. Let's move to the timeline. Let's move to the timeline of the book of Exodus. Now stay with me here. So when we're looking at overall history in the book of Exodus, it describes Jacob traversing to Egypt in 1876 B.C. all the way to the construction of the tabernacle in 1445 B.C. That's roughly 430 years. That's the time period that Exodus covers. So that's, that's a lot of years. It's a few centuries. In terms of Moses, to think of it this way, we see the birth of Moses in 1526 B.C. all the way to the construction of the tabernacle, which is, again, 1445 B.C. This is roughly 81 years. So hopefully you're still tracking with me here. Now, let's walk through this in a little more detail so you can see what happens. Now remember I told you when we were working through the book of Exodus, that one of the, or the book of Genesis rather, that one of the common features of Hebrew narrative is that Hebrew narrative slows down as important events arise. You remember there were huge gaps in Abraham's life at certain times, right? So the narrative or the narrator just skips over some events. And then during some events, in Abraham's life, or maybe Isaac's life, or Jacob, it slows down to mere conversations. That's what you see happen in the book of Exodus. So, so watch this. So Moses' birth is in 1526 B.C. We, we hear about his birth. You're familiar with those events. Then, in the same chapter, 11 verses later, it skips 40 years to Moses murdering someone. That's 1486 B.C. And then by the time we get to Exodus 3 and 4, it skips forward another 40 years to Moses' calling in the burning bush, Exodus 3 and 4. That's 1446 B.C. So we've got a lot of time right there, right? I mean, we're looking at 80 years in Moses' life that are really summed up in less than two chapters. Now, in Exodus 5 through 15... Moses' interaction with Pharaoh, the ten plagues, right? One of the most familiar parts of Exodus, one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible, chapters 5 through 15. That's only one calendar year. So do you see what I mean? So in the beginning of Moses' life, the first 80 years, we get like two minor details. And then all of a sudden, through ten chapters, we're looking at one year, one calendar year for the plagues. Then after the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, we're talking two to three months. 
And then from chapters 19 all the way to 40, chapters 19 all the way to 40, we're looking at about 11 months or one year, okay? Mr. Weathers will not be quizzing you that on next week's gathering, okay? Only, only me, that's right, okay. Now let's look at the outline. This will be helpful. Let's look at the outline of Exodus. Now who remembers how Genesis was outlined? This will make my day. Who remembers how Genesis was outlined? The Toledot formula, yes. The Toledot formula, you'll remember your favorite word from Genesis. Exodus is not outlined like that. So Genesis had those clear cutoff points, those clear distinctions. This is the Toledo, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, et cetera, et cetera. Exodus doesn't do that. So typically you can divide up Exodus in three ways. We'll look at them. First, you can divide it up geographically. Geographically. An easy way to think of that is they're in Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and they're at Sinai. You can divide it up that way, and you would be perfectly fine doing that. Egypt, the wilderness, and Sinai. You could also divide it up by events. So you could start with Moses' birth. You could continue with the calling of Moses, the burning bush. You could do the ten plagues. You could do the song of Moses, etc., etc. But you could also do it thematically. So you can do it geographically by events, or you can do it thematically. And I think this is probably the easiest way, this or geographically. But you can divide it up this way, and I think this might be helpful. Thematically. You can divide it up in two parts, redemption from Egypt and revelation from God. Redemption from Egypt and revelation from God. Chapters 1 through 15 describe the most monumental event in the Old Testament. God takes the people of Israel by Moses' leadership out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness, heading towards the promised land. And by the way, the the sort of climax of this isn't necessarily the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea in chapter 14. It's actually chapter 15, the song of Moses, when all of the people celebrate. (laughs) Yeah, we're free because all the Egyptians are dead. We're free. We're out of slavery. We're out of bondage in Egypt. So you could divide it up that way, redemption. And then the second part of the book, you could say revelation from God. God reveals himself, although he was already doing that. He sort of streamlines it in chapters 16 through 40. God reveals himself in his law. And we'll see that when we begin the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And then God reveals himself in the construction of the tabernacle. So the law and the tabernacle. So you can break Exodus up in any of these three ways. I think the first and the third are the most helpful. Now along with authorship, the other debated issue is the route of the Exodus or the route. Which way did they go? Where did they travel? Generally, there's been three different routes that have been proposed uh, by scholars. Uh, 
a northern route, a southern route, and one in the, in the middle. Okay? So typically the southern route is the one where conservative scholars have landed. And we'll address some of these issues as we go through the study. But let me just pull up a map here. Hopefully you can maybe see to some degree the route of uh, the Exodus. So this map highlights, you can see it with the red dotted line, the, the southern route. That's typically where your conservative scholars land. Now, of course, for obvious reasons, it's very difficult to track the Exodus. Name places have changed. It was well over a few millennia ago. So, so, it, so it is difficult. But that's not because there's something wrong with the text of Scripture. <laughs> that's because the world has changed a little bit since then and so have different name places. So it is difficult. But we'll address some of those issues as we go along. And I think this map at least helps to see where they were traveling, leaving Egypt and heading towards the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the background of the book of Exodus. Are you, are you still awake? You ought to be. It's 1140. Now, I know you're probably getting hungry for lunch, but... Next, let's look at the relationship of Exodus to Genesis. The relationship of Exodus to Genesis. Well, this shouldn't be a shocker, and you know this because you know your Bible and you have read the Old Testament Scripture, but Exodus continues the plot and the story of Genesis. As Moses writes Exodus, and this is important, so stick with me here. As Moses writes Exodus, he assumes that you already have a keen awareness and knowledge and understanding of Genesis. That's one of the reasons that we just continued with Exodus. And I'm going to argue and pray and hope that we do Leviticus at some point next. And, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Just hold that laughter till I tell you why here in a little bit. So Moses assumes that you know what Exodus is about. And I believe that we do. I, I hope that we do. Exodus is a mere continuation of it. Desmond Alexander writes, Exodus cannot be fully understood without appreciating its literary context. As the second book of the Pentateuch, Exodus continues the story that begins in Genesis. From the outset, the Exodus narrator, which is Moses, presupposes that the reader is familiar with Genesis. Okay? So there are several arguments for this. Here's how we know that Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. Don't just take my word for it. I want you to see the arguments in the biblical text. I think this will be pretty fun. Okay, first off, the vav or the wow conjunction. You're saying, well, what is that? I'm glad that you asked. I'm going to tell you. Now, in Hebrew, the first letter of the text is a conjunction, and I pulled it up for you here. Start it there at the top, all the way on the right, and you're going to read that right to left. That first letter is a conjunction. It is a conjunction telling us that it is a continuation. So you can look through English translations, and they'll translate that and, now, then, or so. So there's a continuation just even in the text, grammatically speaking. Now turn back to chapter 1. Let me show you a couple other things. 
So not only do we have the Vav conjunction, we also have an unexplained name place. Notice here in chapter 1, verse 1, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Notice here, Egypt is mentioned, a name place, but there's no explanation of what is going on in Egypt. None. That's because there doesn't have to be, because what happened in Genesis 37 through 50? Everything basically transpired in Egypt. (laughs) No explanation is needed. Next, the unexplained name change. Notice this. Watch again in verse 1 and see if you catch this. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Notice in one verse, (laughs) both Jacob and Israel are used, and it's referring to the same person with no explanation. Look, if you don't have a clue about Genesis, you're really confused with that statement, right? Sure. Let's look at another argument, the creation mandate. Remember the creation mandate, Genesis 1. The creation mandate, Genesis 9. Be fruitful and multiply. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. I mean, that, that is echoing the creation mandate. By the way, in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, what was part of the Abrahamic covenant? That you would have descendants that numbered the sand and the stars. There it is. It's happening. Let's keep going. Are you convinced yet? Okay, some of you are. Lack of information about Joseph. Lack of information about Joseph. Notice chapter 1, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, what in the world does that mean? If you haven't read Genesis. And we did. We studied the Joseph narrative for 13 weeks. And then lastly here, turn over to chapter 3. And there are more. This is just a sample, and I ran out of room on my PowerPoint. Chapter 315. Notice when God speaks here, he identifies himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We understand that language. That's a direct reference to what? The Abrahamic covenant all throughout Genesis. So Exodus continues the story of Genesis. So not only does the plot continue, the theology and the themes continue. And you'll see this as we go through, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. But the same theology the same understanding of God, the same understanding of sinful man, and all of those things continues. It's interesting that you see the sinfulness of man in Genesis 3, you see murder in Genesis 4, and what do you see at the beginning of Exodus? (laughs) The sinfulness of man with Pharaoh and murder with who? Moses. So those same themes continue here. Those are motifs all throughout the text. So we've seen the background, we've seen the relationship of Exodus to Genesis. Let's thirdly look at a biblical theology of Exodus, a biblical theology of Exodus. So let's talk about certain themes that we will find in our study in the next year. 
So we're just going to fly over these, more of an aerial view of some of the major themes that we find in Exodus, all of these which tie into the story of Exodus, but even the greater story of redemption. That, that's what we see here. So let's specifically begin with Exodus and its world. Exodus and this world. So we've already said that Exodus can be broken up into or divided into two sections. Uh, redemption from Egypt and revelation from God. So in all of that, from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 40... God begins to reveal himself or make himself known in certain ways. So in Exodus, we will see and come to know God better. And the same would have been true for the nation of Israel. This can be traced all throughout Exodus, that God is making himself known. God was making himself known to families in Genesis, but now when you get to Exodus, God is making himself known to a what? To an entire nation. To an entire nation. Everything is on a grander scale in Exodus, by the way. You know this. I mean, this is why most of us are probably more familiar with the narrative of Exodus because it's just larger. It's just bigger. It's grander. And that's what we see. So let's see this motif of knowing God in Exodus. This is going to be fun for us the next few months. But Exodus 1 and 2 begins the same way that Genesis ends. It begins with God working providentially. You remember back to our study of Genesis 37 through 50, and we don't really see the hand of God overtly and miraculously in that narrative. Rather, we see God providentially working behind the scenes. That's why in chapter 50, it says what they meant for evil, God meant for good. That's telling us that throughout all of those events, God was behind the scenes working. Now, when you read Exodus 1 and 2, you will notice that God isn't working miraculously. Rather, he is working providentially. He's still making himself known, but it's in a providential way. How is he doing that? Well, he's bringing suffering through Pharaoh onto the people. And because of that, we are told, they are being fruitful and multiplying and grow into this large nation. Now, who's orchestrating all of that behind the scenes? God is. Now, the providential working of God in Exodus shifts when you get to Exodus chapter 3 and 4. How does it shift? Well, that's because God appears in a burning bush. Now, clearly, this is new in redemptive history. This is new in the Old Testament. So God is still working providentially, but now in Exodus, he's going to make himself known by revealing himself in certain ways. And in chapter 3, he reveals himself in a bush that isn't being consumed. The bush is on fire and notice, for the first time officially, in that scene, in that situation, God reveals his name. He says, I am who I am. God is revealing himself in a personal way, first to Moses, and then he will reveal himself in a more wider scope to the nation of Israel. It's amazing to think about. 
In fact, if you think about God's name, I am, God is telling Moses in that conversation, telling him from the burning bush that I am the same God that orchestrated that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the same God that made those statements that your people would be fruitful and multiply and that your people would get to a certain land peace. (laughs) That's what he's saying. I am. Yep, that's me. Oh, by the way, Moses, I'm calling you a sinner to lead the people that direction. So God reveals himself to Moses in that way. And then, of course, we know Exodus 5 through 14 and the 10 plagues, right? (laughs) I mean, if you look at chapter 5, verse 2, I love this. If you look at chapter 5, verse 2, as the plagues are about to come, notice chapter 5, verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Moses knew who was in charge based on chapter three and four. At that point in the narrative, chapter five, Pharaoh didn't know who was in charge. (laughs) But he's gonna find out over the next year, isn't he? God is making himself known. Look at chapter seven, verse five, by the way. We often wonder why God did the plagues performed the plagues miraculously. Chapter seven, verse five, here's why he did it. So that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is making himself known and he does it miraculously in Exodus. I mean, a burning bush, it's not normal. (laughs) The 10 plagues, that's not normal. But God is intervening in reality. He's suspending the natural order to make himself known. So after the death of the firstborn, the final plague, the first Passover, Pharaoh understands, yeah, this, this God, this Yahweh, I am, yeah, he, he's, he's the real thing. <laughs> he's the real deal. So he lets the people go. Well, you know the story. He lets the people go. The people gather together, probably two million of them, by the way. Conservative scholars estimate probably two million people walking out of Egypt, heading towards the promised land. Well, you know they run into a couple hiccups, one of those being the Red Sea. (laughs) And there God makes himself known again, doesn't he? Parting the Red Sea, the people miraculously walking through on dry ground, it says multiple times in the text, you know, liberal scholars say they want to just, that they waded through water. I mean, I've waded through water before. That's not dry ground. The text tells us they walked through dry ground, dry land. God made himself known, letting them walk through. And then as they all pass through, I mean, imagine that scene, two million people. They all pass through, they turn around, and the Egyptians, led by Pharaoh, They start making their way in, and then God supernaturally, miraculously confuses them. They don't know what's going on, and they can't get through. And then God drowns them all. God is making himself known. And then in chapter 15, everyone celebrates. (laughs) They're out of slavery. I mean, they've been in slavery 
for over 400 years, and then God steps in and in one calendar year takes them out. They're out of Egypt, and they're traveling. Well, you know, there's more hiccups and bumps in the road. In chapters 16 through 18, they traveled to Sinai. God miraculously makes himself known to them by giving them food and water. Manna from heaven. And then God just tells Moses Moses to go hit a rock with your rod, and I'm going to give two million people water. All God. Then they get to the foot of Mount Sinai, 19 and 20. And then God audibly, from the mountain, gives them the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Audibly. Two million people at the foot of the mount. They couldn't touch the mount. In the same way Moses had to take off his sandals in Exodus 3 because he was standing on holy ground, not one person or animal could touch Mount Sinai because that mountain was holy because God was descending upon it. He gives them the Ten Commandments audibly. you imagine that scene? And then all the people are terrified, right? They're like, oh, oh wait a minute here, God, don't, don't talk to us. Just talk to Moses and let Moses relay everything to us. <laughs> God's making himself known. He gives his law. He goes on to further develop his law. And then God begins to give instructions to build the tabernacle. Everybody's favorite part of Exodus, right? (laughs) The building and construction of the tabernacle. So God gives instructions for the location or the building, if you will, that he will come in a cloud and reside with the people. But then right after he gives those instructions, what does the nation do? While Moses is up on the mount, communing with God, receiving law, receiving revelation, they erect a golden calf. Shocking, right? But then Moses comes down the mountain, and then he reveals to them that God is gracious. And he's full of mercy and compassion and steadfast love, while at the same time he is a just and righteous and holy God. Again, God revealing himself, making himself known to his people. And it's interesting here as we sort of wrap up a biblical theology of of Exodus. Follow with me here. This is going to be my plug for Leviticus, okay? The book of Exodus begins in Egypt. The book of Exodus begins in Egypt with God working providentially. The book of Exodus ends with the construction and building of the tabernacle in which God will now descend in a cloud and he will reside in the midst of his people. And then as they travel, they will pick up that tabernacle, they will pack it up and they will take it to to the next location. They will set up camp, construct the tabernacle again and God will descend and reside with the people. Isn't that amazing? Chapter 1 in Egypt, chapter 40, God is residing in the camp with the people. Here's the problem, though. When God is residing in the tabernacle, no one can go in. And that's how it ends. It's sort of a cliffhanger, right? That's because you need the book of Leviticus, because you can only come to a holy God through sacrifice. And that's everything that Leviticus explains, which is why we're studying that next. (laughs) I'm kidding. Hopefully not. Hopefully not on the kidding part. I hope we are studying it. So you see, Exodus is about knowing God. It's about knowing God. But Exodus is also about the gospel. 
Exodus is also about the gospel. The redemption narrative told in Exodus becomes the framework and the foundation and the paradigm of salvation in the rest of Scripture. The rest of Old Testament history looks back at the Exodus as the event of the Old Testament. But such an event previews the redemption that is found in who? Jesus Christ. Rather than being enslaved to the Egyptians, all humanity is enslaved to their own sin. Sin is their master. All have been corrupted by it, and there is no escape on a human level. Which is right, Christ, the eternal Son of God, took to himself flesh. He lived in this world, and he died on that cross, sacrificing himself for sins, which is what the Passover previews. Christ died on Passover in accordance with Exodus 11 and 12. Moses led his people out of Egypt towards the promised land. Hebrews 3 tells us that Jesus Christ is the greater Moses. And this gospel isn't only focused on redeeming a people uh, from Egypt, but it is centrally focused and primarily on redeeming people from their sins and making the glory of God known. That's why when Paul finishes the gospel, his gospel explanation in Romans 1 through 11, how does he end? It's just with the doxology of praise. God, to your name be the glory. Now I want us to turn to one final scripture. Turn to Luke chapter 9 as we end our time. Luke chapter 9. Another familiar event in Scripture, one that you no doubtedly know, Jesus' transfiguration. We're familiar with that, right? Jesus transfigures on the mount. You remember he calls up Peter, James, and John. He, he pulls those three disciples out of his 12. And he did that often with those three, but he pulls together Peter, James, and John, and he transfigures before them. He, he unveils his glory. He makes himself known. Look at verse 28 of Luke 9. Some eight days after these sayings, so Jesus just finished teaching, he, Jesus, took along Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. Notice verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him. Who were those men? Moses and Elijah. It's amazing, right? Now here's what I want you to see. With that context, with that background, look at verse 31. Who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now that's interesting here. Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up and they start talking and speaking of Jesus' departure, his death, the redemption that he was about to buy on the cross. The Greek word for departure was intentionally written by Luke to draw your attention back to Exodus. It's the Greek word exodus. Exodus. 
Moses and Elijah appear, and they were speaking of Jesus' exodus from this world. Notice verse 33, jump down there with me. Peter and the disciples, they respond, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, Moses and Elijah. Of course, what is that referencing? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. Notice verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. I mean, you can think of the cloud type language directly from Exodus. A pillar of fire that led him at night, a pillar of cloud that led him during the day. Over Mount Sinai, a cloud descended where God appeared. Of course, over the tent of meeting with Moses and then over the tabernacle, a cloud. I mean, the, guys, the gospel and the gospel message is directly linked to Moses and the Exodus. Well, our time is up, and you can see that on your handout. I actually typed in the application points for you. That way you wouldn't have to write them down, because I knew we would be out of time. I trust that our time this morning in God's Word has been fruitful as we've taken a look at the background and the introductory portion of Exodus. Uh, But as you leave today and as you're able this week, know that even though this book was written millennia ago, The application for us is never-ending, and we will see as we work through chapter by chapter the truths of the Exodus, but how we can appropriate those realities to our own lives today. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for your word and the treasure that we have in it. I pray as we embark on a study of Exodus that we would immerse ourselves in the Exodus world uh, to be eyewitnesses, if you will, bystanders of such magnificent events that you have decided to record in your word. May we see redemption and the foundation of it, and may it point us towards Christ, our Lord and Savior, who redeemed us from our sin and brought us into your kingdom. We're grateful for that truth and that reality, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.